0: Everyone, welcome back. It is Jay Scott and it is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. We always appreciate your support. And please don't forget to write a review after the episode. We always appreciate your feedback and you stopping by. We are part of Pantheon Podcast Network, great network of music-related podcasts in the official podcast platform for Metallica's podcast. So please check that out when you get a chance, as well as all the other diverse music-related podcasts on the platform. Mm-hmm. You can check out Pantheon Pods on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pantheon Pods. And you do the same with The Hook Rocks on all three of those platforms. Just search up The Hook Rocks. Don't forget to set your app to automatic download so you get the latest episodes right to your phone. We've had some great episodes over the last several months. We celebrated our four-year anniversary, our 500th episode. Our four-year anniversary was with Nita Strauss. Our 500th was with Dax Nielsen from Cheap Trick. We also welcomed in Richie Kotzen. Rick Nielsen as well, Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy, and some great new bands recently like Emily Wolfe and Parker Barrow and the great UK artist Els Bailey. So please check out all those and more. And also, don't forget to check out the Tracy Guns episode where he talked about his friendship with Eddie Van Halen on the anniversary of Eddie's passing. And our next guest today is a super treat for me. Because I had an older brother, as I've mentioned before, that was a big, huge Dockin fan when I was growing up. So I got inundated with hard rock and heavy metal from the time I was six, seven years old. And we had this radio station in Chicago called WVVX RPM 103.1. It was Spanish speaking during the day. And at seven o'clock, they flicked the switch and hard rock played till midnight. And there was one night this band was playing at the Aragon Ballroom. I think they were opening up for Judas Priest and the lead singer. Don Dockin, our latest guest, came on and stayed in the studio at this radio station for like two hours, two, three hours, and just talked with Scott Loftus, the old DJ there. And I remember putting my boombox on the other side of the bed so my mom thought I was sleeping and ran the headphones up so she wouldn't sleep. And I sat and listened to this interview, and I thought, man, this is badass. First time I ever heard a rock and roll interview. And now I get the chance to talk with him myself. Without further ado, like to welcome the legendary singer and frontman of the band docking don Docken. what's happening man how you doing boss well i'm doing good i know you've got uh some voice issues which you just told me about because you had a long weekend with a lot of stuff going on with two shows and, and filming some videos but we'll get through it i just appreciate your time man
1: yeah my apologies for sounding like a dirty old man i'm so i could barely talk this morning so i took some medicine it's getting hey i can talk a little bit now but uh, it was a rough weekend. You know, we had two sold out shows in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Aurora, Illinois. And then we had to film four videos in one day. That's crazy. That's a lot of work, man. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought well, I'd lip sync, you know, you'd lip sync the songs off yeah. the album. I tried, and the director kept saying, dude, I can tell you're, you're lip syncing. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to sing the song five times for real.
0: Did you film those in Green Bay or in Aurora? Aurora. Okay. Well, man, it's glad to have you on. You got the new album coming out, When Heaven Comes Down, which is great. Um, obviously, people know the song, When Heaven Comes Down, from the great album Tooth and Nail. Yep. Before we begin, i like to start, as we always do every time we have a first-time guest, and really the essence of the show, just like every rock song has a hook that pulls you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What hooked you?
1: Uh, God, honestly, you know, you know, when I was young, I did the same thing as you did. You know, I'm listening to the radio station, and my mom bought me a guitar at a, po- a pawn shop for a hundred bucks. So I would go to school. I was probably in the sixth grade, and I'd come home every day, and I'd go in the garage. Next to our washing machine, and I had a little amplifier, and I would just play these little records and try to learn the songs. And that's what turned me on to all these great bands, you know, from the 60s and then the 70s. And then, you know, I would play guitar for 50 years.
0: Was there one particular artist that grabbed you, or was there a song?
1: Yeah. My first album I ever bought was Cream, Fresh Cream. When I heard Eric Clapton, I said, oh, my God, you know, Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. I mean, it was just such a great album. And my first single I ever bought, a little 45s, I couldn't afford to buy a record to have the money. And it was a band uh called the Strawberry Alarm Clock. And they had this song called Incense and Peppermints." You know, it was the 60s. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. It, what's Incense and Peppermint? I don't know. But I liked the song and I just would sit there every day and try to learn these songs, you know, and that's what got my career rolling.
0: Now you started out or you were a guitar player, especially in the, in the beginning days of Dockin'.
1: Yeah. I wasn't a singer. We had a lead singer.
0: Yeah. And obviously every, you know, a lot of people know the history of the band, you know, a lot of the album, especially the song Paris is burning. I believe was you and George back and forth on the guitar too, as well. Yeah, we're going and then, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of went strictly with vocals with tooth and nail and and beyond. Do you ever think about what your career would have been like if you would just would have stayed as a guitar player?
1: Well, I ran into this singer that was in my band, you know, 40 years ago. And and I said, Well, I have to thank you for flaking out on us at a show. We were playing at a, a gig near the LA airport, it was called the Proud Bird a giant uh, ballroom and then Van Halen was playing. So it was, uh, we weren't even called docking yet. We were called airborne and I was just the guitar player and we were warming up for Van Halen and our singer didn't show up. He he just flaked. He couldn't take the pressure. So I went to my boys, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I guess I'll try to sing. And the truth is, you know, when I first time I saw Eddie Van Halen play, I, I remember see, seeing him and my jaw dropped. And I thought, I will never, ever be as good as Eddie Van Halen. So I kind of switched to vocals and guitar. Our first U.S. tour, when George came into the band, we went on tour at Bloister Cult and I was still playing guitar. He was playing lead guitar. I was playing rhythm. And, but then my manager said, you know, could you put the guitar down cuz we need a front man. You know, when you're playing guitar, you're stuck on the microphone. You can't run around the stage like David Lee Roth, you know. And I said, "Well, I really didn't plan on, you know, becoming a singer. I was I'm a guitar player. But eventually I became the singer." <laughs> Do
0: you ever think about how different you guys would have sounded if you would have stayed as a singer guitar player?
1: I don't think about it. I mean, the guy that didn't show up uh, God, I can't remember his name. Um, he sounded like, uh, Ian Gillen, you know, he was an amazing singer. And, uh, I don't know why, you know, I, I he ended, he just didn't show, you know, and I went shit. So, uh, he ended up going to the clothing business or something. And I saw him like 15 years later and he said, man, you guys got famous. I said, yeah, dumb luck. And he goes, I should have showed up that night. I said, "Yep, you should have showed up."
0: When you think back at that time, you mentioned seeing Eddie Van Halen. Obviously, they were they were like the first band off the strip to really make it big, and they were huge. They were gigantic, and yeah. everyone kind of followed them after. It was you know, Dockin', Rat, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, and there was always this especially a young kid growing up like myself, impressionable young kid of seeing like footage of the sunset strip back in the day, just seemed like a world of chaos, which was great to me. I was like, wow, that is awesome. What was it like though, for you with all these bands coming up in the shadow of Van Halen? Was there, was there a community? Was there competition? Was it all the above? How did you work to stand out with what you were doing?
1: Well, of course there was competition, which is healthy. I just remember uh, Van Halen got their record. and We we played with Van Halen when I changed, went, changed the name to and because some band got signed called Airborne. And I'm like, oh, no, we can't use the name anymore. Well, we'll just call the band temporarily Doc until we can come up with a better name. And it just stuck. And uh, Van Halen came out, did the Us Festival. Their first album came out. I got that record. It blew my mind when Eddie Van Halen played Eruption, And I, I'd never seen a guitar player that used two hands on the neck. You know, he played with, he tapped, you know, and he used two hands. And I said, what the heck is he doing? You know, and, uh, he was a genius, you know, and it was kind of interesting that I knew Eddie really well. We played on the strip. I played with Quiet Riot, Motley. And then you fast forward eight years and we're playing stadiums with Van Halen and the Scorpions at the Monsters of Rock. So Eddie and I used to just sit up after the show in the hotel in the, in the stairwell and just shoot the breeze because by then he had had Wolfgang and uh, I had had my son Tyler and we brought the kids, you know, they were like three years old. So him and I would just sit out in the stairwell and just talk about who would have thought eight years, we you go from the whiskey-a-go-go, 600 people to 100,000 people. So we would just talk about that, but we'd just talk about amplifiers and guitars and people didn't realize he built his first guitar. So we would just, you know, that's what we talk about. And you know, and I said, wow, eight years went by really fast from clubs to stadiums and we had reached that stadium level too. So we would just shoot the breeze and yeah, I know that Eddie's passing, you know, I mean, I, it really, really hit me hard, you know when he passed and um, there's been a lot of great friends of mine from the sunset strip days and Kevin Dubrow's Frankie Benelli's Randy Rhodes, a lot of people have passed and it's tragic, you know, but it was the glory days. I have no regrets. Uh, It was, it was chaotic, but there was also a lot of beautiful women walking up and down the strip.
0: Was it, the debauchery that was portrayed or was a lot of that pumped up to create like this mystery and this vibe that was happening or was that all that really true? Cause when you watch the dirt, you know, I walk out of that movie and when I saw it, I watched that Netflix. I'm like, man, how, how, how are those four guys still alive?
1: Well, you know, maybe six wasn't alive for about 10 minutes You know, he did his overdose on uh, heroin, but I would say The Dirt was very honest. You know, I mean, they didn't hide anything about heroin and drugs and they didn't hide anything, you know. So I thought that was great and interesting. You mentioned that movie, The Dirt, and right now uh, Netflix is actually making a movie about Dawkins from the 80s. And it's the same director that did The Dirt. Really? Yep.
0: That is fantastic. Because there's Same. a lot. Of, I mean, you guys have a lot of, I mean, with all the history of the band and people that know and are familiar with all the stories with Doc and the drama, that's going to be very compelling. That's going to be a good movie.
1: It's going to be a good movie. I a couple months ago, I went down and they wanted to film me at the Whiskey where we started. And they just asked me, you know, questions. And they said, we want to know. Cause there's been so much talked about the Whiskey and the Rainbow. and everything that went on and people don't realize the doors were the house band at the whiskey at one point. And and I just said, well, I'll try to come up with some stories, you know, because it's already been put out there in the dirt and Netflix about the rainbow. And so I tried to come up with stuff that people haven't heard. And I told the director, I said, but I really shouldn't be talking about this stuff because it's pretty debauchery. I mean, like, I told him a story about the whiskey, you know. There was only one bathroom upstairs and three dressing rooms. And we could never get in the dang bathroom when we were playing Van Halen because David Lee Roth made that his uh, temporary sex office. Well, hey. When the door was locked, I'm like, David, come on, man. Got four guys that need to pee. He's like, I'll be out in a minute. I'm like, come on. So where did you we, pee? We waited. <laughs> or we peed on the trash can. Wow. I just, you know,
0: I was, you know, a kid growing up in the eighties and seeing all that stuff and reading all the magazines and everything. it was just it's a time that people always like to dismiss it with that music because of the way the bands looked. But After that, there hasn't been any form of rock and roll that has lasted as long as that did. I mean, you know, from the early 80s, 80, 81 was really the beginning to all the way to the early 90s, like 92, 93. Yeah. What other, I mean, everyone talks about grunge. Grunge was probably only a handful of years that lasted after that. But there really wasn't a scene like that that has come up since then. And the way music is now, the way everything is so fragmented. It's never going to happen again. That is never happening again.
1: No, those were the glory days. And uh, it was fun, especially you when you're like 23 years old. Uh, but that was why, um, actually, after Van Halen got signed, all these bands started coming to L.A. from Ohio, like Poison, and Mississippi, and Detroit, and Atlanta. And there's all these bands came to L.A., thinking they're going to get a record deal because Van Halen exploded but it didn't happen it didn't happen you know uh, New Wave took off for a couple years and I decided I don't like New Wave I'm a rock guy and that's when I went to Germany you know in 79 right after Van Halen blew out and came huge I had an offer to go to Germany and play clubs the same clubs the Beatles played a lot of people don't realize the Beatles started out in Hamburg, Germany, playing five hours a night doing copy songs before they made it. It's well documented, you know, the Beatles played all these clubs and this street called the Reaperbahn was basically where all the hookers hung out. And so I went to Germany and I did that tour and, you know, because people weren't signing rock bands. But then when I came back, you know, we were mostly just long-haired guys. You know, there was no hairspray. And then and then all of a sudden, these other bands like Motley and Poison hit the scene with the big hair and the Aquanet and, and the glam clothes. And I was like, what the heck's going on? Everything changed. But, you know, when I got back to L.A., there was bands like Devo and Blondie and, you know, just new wave bands. So we still couldn't get a gig. They didn't want to play rock anymore in the strip. And that was a time, probably 19... 70 1980, and then 81, I went back to Germany, got my first record deal. Everybody thought we were German because my name, Daken, is Norwegian, but they thought it was a German name. And I went back and got my first record deal for a whopping $8,500. <laughs> Not a lot of money to make a record, and that's when I met Dieter Dirks and the Scorpions, and I sang some background vocals on Blackout and and just did the high notes because uh, Klaus had, had some vocal problems and surgery. And so I just did the really, really, really high notes because I was young and I was fresh. I was a virgin locally. And I was, you know, I sang really high, even in the 80s. So that's how it all started. And then Breaking the Chains came out in Germany originally. And it was a picture of me on the cover chained up. And it said Don Dockin, not Dawkins, Dock, It said Don Dockin, because I didn't have a band. I got the record deal, but I didn't have a band. So that's when I called Mick Brown, George Lynch. I knew them in L.A. from a band called The Boys and asked them if they wanted to come to Germany and play the rhythm tracks as Session Cats. And they did. And then the rest is history. We became Dockin.
0: Was there any truth, because I've seen, I've read rumors where you almost replaced Klaus because they didn't know if he was going to come back after his surgeries back then. Is there any truth to that?
1: Zero. Okay. Zero. And I always said that, you know, cause I'm really good friends with Scorpions, especially now that Mickey D is in the Scorpions and he was in docking. Okay. Then he went to motorhead of course. And, and the only reason that rumor spread was because I was in the studio one day singing some background vocals. I know one like you, dynamite, give me all I need. Just the really, really high, high, high notes. And some journalist came in the studio and saw Klaus and he had like these things on his neck and wires and a, it was called a 10 that vibrates your vocal cords to make them heal quicker. And he saw me in the studio seeing some background vocals and he thought, ah, Don and he's going to join the Scorpions. And I was like, and I remember, uh, Klaus and I didn't talk much. And one day we're in the my cafeteria above the control room. And I just sat down with Klaus and I said, well, I just want you to know something. Came out in a magazine and I said, you are the Scorpions. Klaus my, is the Scorpions. The sound of his voice is vibrato. Uh, I said, even if they asked me to join the band, I would never have joined the Scorpions. I mean, it would have been my greatest dream, but in my opinion, Klaus is the sound of the scorpions. And I just told them that, you know, and then we became really good friends after that. I mean, they still even they still send me videos every year of my birthday, you know. And they're like, he's like, Hello, Don. And all the scorpions are standing on stage with 50,000 people. And they're like, It's your birthday. And they say, Happy birthday to me. And they send me a video and they're just getting ready to go on stage, but that they're so kind. They actually take two minutes to make a video to say happy birthday to me and send it to me. So we're really, yeah, they're really good friends of mine.
0: With the new album coming out, you know, we've talked a little bit about a lot of different things here in a short period of time we've been talking, but as you now are are further along in your career and you talk about the movie and the stories, it's Mm -hmm. hard not to get in reflective mode. At your age with what you do and, and the music you've done, the career you've had, along with putting out new music as well. How do you balance things these days of looking back in the past and, and, and learning, knowing you learned a lot through this whole journey you've had, but also keep going forward with new music?
1: Well, I realized after living in Los Angeles my whole life. That it was time to leave. You know, It changed. Traffic, people, the rock scene was dead. You know, it's still dead. I go back every four or five months, visit my kids. The troubadour is gone, basically. They're not, they're just closed all the time. Uh, There was the troubadour, um, the Gazaris. They ended up selling that place when Bill Gazzari died. And um, 50 Cent ended up buying the Gazaris, they changed it to a name called billboard live. Now it's called like Q and he bought this huge venue and it's closed most of the year. And he only has it when he wants to have a party because he realized he can't fit all these people in his mansion. So, uh, every once in a while I'll be driving down sunset when I'm down there and there's a line of people around the block and they're just doing rap and, you know, disco and whatever. So that club's gone. Troubadour's gone. Starwood's gone. Uh, really, the whiskey now doesn't have nationals. They're just local bands that pay to play. And that's I said, wow, you have to pay to play? You know, they give you tickets. You have to sell $500 with tickets or you can't play there. So everything changed. Mario Magliari was a very good friend of mine. He owned the Rainbow and the whiskey. And uh, he passed away so the the whole rock scene of the glory days of the strip is gone in my opinion, with the exception now they built a patio outside the rainbow. There's a six foot statue of Lemmy, and they call it the Lemmy room and all the seats out the motorhead logo, the horns and uh yeah, I mean, like i I tell people the first famous person I ever met in my life was in 1979. I was in Hamburg and I went to the club called the top 10 club. Cause I wanted to see the bathroom downstairs because supposedly the Beatles had signed their name and, uh, they put like plastic over it, you know, so people wouldn't damage it. So I'm checking the club out and I walk up, there's like five people in the club and I see this guy sitting there with his cool hat on and stuff. And, I said, man, that looks like Lemmy Kilmister. <laughs> so I walked over and I said, hey, it's, my name's Don Dawkin. I'm playing her tomorrow night, you know, and wow, you know, I really love your song, Ace of Spades, you know, and and I knew who he was when he was in Hawkwind before he did Motorhead. And, and he said to me, are you buying? <laughs> and I went, yeah, I'm buying. I just wanted to hang out with Lemmy, man. So... The funny thing about Lemmy is that was in like 1979 and the next 40 years, every time motorhead came into town, you know, you got 50 people that want to get backstage. you got 50 people that want to get on the bus. I'd show up to motorhead show. I don't have tickets I'm not on the guest list before Mickey D's time, you know, when animal was the drummer. And I just tell his security guys, I say, can you tell me that Don Dawkins here? I'd love to say hi. And he would bring me onto the bus or backstage immediately. We were bros. And uh he'd always bring it up. He goes, I remember when I met you in Hamburg, I thought you were German. <laughs> I said, no, I'm Norwegian actually. But yeah, kept saying, I bet you in Hamburg, right? Yeah. But you're from LA, right? Yeah. But what the hell were you doing in Hamburg? I go, Oh man, that's a long story. <laughs> so Lemmy and I remained really great friends uh, till the end of his life. And I remember when they were looking for a drummer and Mickey D had been playing with me for several years and and I told him you should try out for Motorhead, man, because Mickey D is an amazing, amazing drummer. So I've had these long relationships with uh, Rudy Shanker, Matthias Jobs, Klaus Minow, Lemmy, you know, Eddie Van Halen. So we are all kind of a family. And, you know, you're on the road, you come to LA, we all go and we'll see the show. We all end up at the rainbow because we know us where all the girls are. And it was, it went on for 30 years.
0: You've made a, some news recently with some comments about if Dacan had a different guitar player and all the cocaine that you guys used to do. I know I've had uh george on the show previously talked about the dream warriors video um uh time where there was a lot of cocaine being done during the the video shoot you know obviously all those bands came up through la rat we talked about warren demartini and juan crossier who's on breaking the chains as well yeah <laughs> when you when you make a statement like that that it would have been different for docking had warren been in the guitar Where are you coming from? What's your point of view on that? Like, why? Why? Because Dakin is such a distinct sound from that period, sound that we all love. Do you think the sound would have been different? How different would it have been if you do?
1: I think Warren, uh, he, you know, was a fan of George's playing. And, you know, Rat and us both came out at the same time, kind of. And the truth is, when we did the whiskey, we did a showcase for record companies And Warren D. Martini was in Dockin for about a minute. So he came into Dockin. He was 18. I think he was 18. And he's from San Diego. And he knew Stephen Piercy and King and and Juan. And Juan said, I can't play in Dockin anymore because he couldn't get along with George. And I can totally understand that. And uh, Warren was so easy to get along with. He was a great guitar player. He wrote great songs. So did King, Robin Crow. We called him King because he was like six five. And uh, so we did a showcase with Warren at the Whiskey. And George had gone off to join Ozzy, or Blizzard of Oz. They flew him to England. It was down to George, Jakey Lee, and some other guitar player. And apparently, George got lost in London, and he showed up to the audition a couple hours late. You'd have to talk to him about that. And they took Jakey. So I'm at the whiskey and we're showcasing, trying to get a record deal for the America and I'm singing. I look out and I see George in the audience and I'm thinking, what the hell's he doing here? He's in blizzard of Oz, but apparently he didn't get the gig. So, and it was kind of funny because Warren was young and, and I remember after the show, George was telling Warren, you don't want to be in docking man. John, Don's an ass and, you don't want to do it, man. You should stick with rat, you know, and Don's a pain and because George wanted his gig back. <laughs> so the EP came out of rat uh, was like, I think it was like four or five songs on it. And George wanted, he wanted to be back in doc because I just gotten a record. I got a record deal. I got off from my first arena tour with Bloister cold and Al Nova and Y and T we played 30 minutes in arenas. I was all excited but, you know, Warren had to make a decision. Do I go with Rat? Do I stay in Dokken? Juan had done my first tour in Germany. It was me and Juan. Uh, the Most lost tapes album I might put out, live recordings of Hamburg. And Juan would sing a few songs. I would play a few songs, you know. And I was the lead guitar player and the lead singer. So, but Juan decided to go with Rat. And Warren decided to go with Rat. So all of a sudden I have a dilemma. I've got a arena tour, 10,000 people with Blue Oaks or Colt. And yeah, it was Aldo Nova. And then he left and then Y&T came on that tour. So, you know, we had, we had no bass player. So uh, I made some phone calls and just by dumb luck, where I was living in the valley in this apartment with my girlfriend at the time, and uh Mike Varney, who owns Shrapton Records, said, well, there's this really great bass player. I said, no, I need a bass player that can sing because all my songs have harmonies. And Mick and I were all living together with this girl. And uh, I think George was even sleeping on the couch. So we went down and it turned out this club was like two miles from the condo. So we drove down to Van Nuys Boulevard and there was this club called Shot of Gold. I remember pulling in. And we went in there, and there was a girl singing. I'm like, what the hell? And there was Jeff. He was playing bass, and he was singing a little Red Corvette. I'll never forget it. And we asked Jeff if he wanted to join the band. We got a tour coming up. We've got three weeks to practice, and we have to film the video break of the show.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
1: Thanks. And I would have thought Jeff would have went, yeah, I want to do this. I want to play arenas and do a video, and I'm, I'm stuck in this bar that smells like pee. And it was kind of surprising. He he said, I'll have to think about it. And I went, you're kidding me, right? But he wanted to be a lead singer. That Jeff was Jeff's dream to be a front man and be a lead singer. So he thought about it. And uh George and I went to his apartment. And I remember he lived in this apartment with this girl and there was cockroaches everywhere. He walked in and he said, Hang on a second. I'll never forget it. Jeff goes, hang on a second. And he'd flick the lights on, and then all these cockroaches would just run everywhere. And I'm talking about prehistoric sized cockroaches. So that was it. You know, he had this old Honda, it was all beat up, it barely ran, and he couldn't get to rehearsal, it kept breaking down, good thing I'm a mechanic. And that's that's what happened. That's how Jeff got in the band. And Jeff even said after the tour, B.O.C., he goes, I just thought I'd just do this tour and then I'd move on with my career, become a singer and start my own band. But then we started to take off. And the next thing you know, they picked up our option. We did Tooth and Nail. Now, the truth is, and you can ask Tom Zutat, who's a legendary A&R man. He was like 24 and he had signed Dawkin and he had signed Motley. And we came off the tour and Tom called me and he said, well, the president of Electra wants to kick you off the label and Motley Crew. They want to get rid of Motley and Dawkins because the president saw themselves going more R&B, uh, you know, more different kind of music, you know. So he begged, I begged, to say, give us one more shot. And luckily we landed management with a, a guy named... Uh, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Manch were like the biggest managers in the world, Q Prime. And Clip was an avid a music lover. He liked to go to stores and find records that nobody knew about. You know, he would dig through the bins and the imports and he found the album breaking the chains and he hunted me down, flew to LA. I met with him. I remember he said, meet me at tower records and we'll go look for some cool records. Okay. So I met Clip, he started to manage me. And that the rest is history, man. He kept us for to the top of our career. And we were playing stadiums. And I remember Clip saying, If you guys could just stop fighting long enough and just do one more great record, you'll be headlining the world. You guys will be millionaires. You'll be doing arenas. And I'm like, yes, yes, this is my dream come true. Finally, my dream. And it was just so sad that, you know, during Monsters of Rock, the, after everybody started making money, I never did Coke. So I'll stand by that. And everybody knows I never did Coke. It wasn't my thing. And so, you know, we couldn't, we just, George and I just were button heads, you know, and that's when the band broke up. We broke up on our last show in Denver, uh, Denver, Colorado, hundred thousand people. Had a meeting afterwards. I told the record company president. Clip was there. The band was there. And I said, I said I can play with Jeff and I can play with Mick, but I can't play with George. We just don't get along. And that's when the band ended.
0: How did you guys mend that relationship that allowed George to do encores with you? Because I saw you guys in Waukegan. I don't know if it was last year or the year before. George came out for a couple songs. Waukegan, Illinois, at the Genesee Theater. Right, and um, you know, and again, reading about your history and knowing all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, how were you guys able to, to to finally? I mean, obviously, you had the shows in South Dakota, and then you did the shows in Japan too, as well. That was kind of maybe the beginning of that. But you know, knowing how you guys didn't get along, how did that? How did you guys mend your relationship in order to do this?
1: Age, age, you know, George went on to do Lynch Mob. Jeff went on being foreigner. He's been in foreigner for I don't know God, like two decades. And, you know, and that was when, you know, you fast forward 20 years, and we thought maybe we should get back together, do a reunion tour. And that's when we said, well, let's maybe we should rehearse and do one show in America to see if the magic is still there. And that's when we did the Badlands gig in South Dakota. So we filmed it, we did the show. We went to Japan, you know, and I said, well, I don't want to commit to a U.S. tour. Let's do four shows in Japan. We're still really popular there. We sold out every night as a test. And the truth is, when we did Japan and uh after the Badlands show, I realized the magic wasn't there anymore. It just wasn't. So I just said, no, I don't want to do it. You know, I'm just going to move on. And I did.
0: How did you define that what was missing in your opinion you know with the, with
1: the magic the groove the 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 tightness the just you know the band is a tight machine you know like a good running engine you know george had gone on to lynch mob he did like a bunch of albums after that jeff put out a couple solo albums but basically you know mick joined lynch mob for a couple years then he came back to docking he called me up and he said, I want to be back playing with you. You know, I like your music. And so Mick came back to the band and then Jeff came back in the band and I wrote the album dysfunctional and we got a record deal on Sony and I owned, I built a recording studio with Michael Wagner and I had it for years. Really beautiful studio. I built after we'd made some money and, uh, we got the record deal and then John Collotter said, but if I'm going to sign you, I'd like all the original members in Dawkins to be in the band. And I said, I don't know if I can do that. You know, I haven't seen George in years. So he had the album was done. Dysfunction was finished. Jeff, Mick and I wrote that album and it was going to be our next Dawkins album. And George came back at the last minute and played one solo on the record, which was on the song Too High to Fly. But basically, everything else Jeff, Mick, and myself wrote. And that was a little trippy And We put sitars, and we had piano, and Jeff was a great pianist. Jeff's a great acoustic guitar player, great singer. Mick's a great singer, so we were really proud of that record, and George came at the last minute, because Sony said, we'll only give you a deal if George comes back. And I was like, oh boy, this could be a disaster. So he came back and the rest is history. You know, we still didn't get along. <laughs> we went to Japan. And then I remember after his functional, sold like half a million. And then we went to another label and the three of them decided that they wanted to write more because I was the main writer. And I said, go for it. You know, if you write some great songs, I'm happy to write the lyrics. And we did that album shadow life, which I hate you know, it's a terrible record, I think. I wrote, like, two songs on it. It's not a good record, in my opinion, because the grunge was still happening in the 90s. So the band wanted to go more grunge. And I said, dude, I'm not a grunge singer. It's not my trip, man. And I remember the the, the producer, Kelly Keeling, I know Kelly something, I can't remember his name, Kelly something. He ended up playing in Queenswreck for a few years. <laughs> he'd only produced one record which was Candlebox and we had a chance to work with Bob Rock and Bruce we were going to produce this and I'm like this is going to be awesome best engineer best producer we're going to make this record it's going to be awesome great comeback and the band didn't want to work with them because they didn't do drugs and I went this is a big mistake so I kind of just stepped out. You guys write songs, semi-tapes, tapes. They'd mail me cassettes. I write the lyrics. I didn't like the songs. I didn't like the record. It didn't sound like Dokken. And if you look historically at every Dokken record from day one to now, it's the Dokken logo. With the exception of Shadow Life, my logo's not on there. I said, I refuse to put my name, my logo on this record because I think it's terrible. And if you look at Shadow Life, it's just some weird guy just scribbled docking on it (laughs) because I own the name and the logo. And I said, I don't like this record and I still don't. And the funny thing is Mick of all the records we did, Mick goes, that's my favorite record. I said, well, it's your favorite record because you played amazing drums on that record. He kicked ass. We cut his drums in an airplane hangar and moved all the equipment into an airplane hangar to get this sound and Mick played great, but not my favorite. So once again, George left the band. I moved on, got Red Beach in the band. Uh, and we did, uh you know, erase the slate.
0: I always was impressed with Dackin because out of all the bands that were from that era, probably the only one or maybe probably two that could harmonize like you guys did was probably Bon Jovi and Def Leppard. But none of them had the edge that you guys had, you know, a little bit of a, a, of a darker tone where you guys could, you know, be very comfortable opening up for priest and also play on a bill with Bon Jovi too, as well. I think that was one of the most unique things about Dokken is because you could if everybody likes to categorize music and bands, you could categorize Dokken as a priest type and as a Bon Jovi type. And I always thought it was so fantastic about the band. That's why I always thought there was a lot more depth with the Dokken sound than a lot of other bands.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, we rode the line, I call it. You know, we never toured really big tours of Bon Jovi or other Potlard Poisons or any of those bands. You know, we were touring with ACDC. We were touring with Judas Priest on Turbo Lover. We're returning with Sammy Hager and the Red Rockers. We did the stadium tour. We were an interesting band because we had our, which I guess you call our commercial songs in my dream, just got lucky. It's not love, the hunter alone again, big hits on MTV. But then we had that other schizophrenic side of heaven comes down, kiss of death, tooth and nail, lightning strikes again. You know, we had this dark side. And we had our commercial side. So I think that's how we got stigmatized when we are grew our hair out long and you know, all we as a hair band. But anybody that knows Dawkins, we were not a hair band. You know, if you listen to albums, the lyrics, I I think my lyrics are a little more intelligent. And I don't write lyrics about strippers and stuff like that. I not my thing. I never did it. Look, I wrote The Kiss of Death, it was about AIDS. I wrote Willow Sunrise. It was about the end of the world. Well, those bands weren't writing about that. They're just writing about good times and watching girls strip and unskinny bop and girls, girls, girls. Great songs. Poison wrote great songs. Molly crew are great. So I love Molly crew an amazing band, but it wasn't my writing style. So yeah, you're right. We we're like road. We we're one of those kind of bands that could go on tour with ACDC, Judas Priest. You wouldn't have seen a poison. Or something like that on tour with ACDC. just wouldn't have worked.
0: You, know, you touched on something right there too. About the subject matter of your songs. Which is why I was always puzzled. That you guys didn't transfer better. To the era that came after. The 80s glitz and glam. Because you weren't that band. You weren't the band singing about. Whiskey and chicks and all that kind of stuff. Because obviously we know. There was a more serious tone. After you guys. Or after that whole scene kind of collapsed and i always felt that because of your songwriting and because of the subject matter that you guys should have been one of those bands that was able to maintain its popularity through all that but i guess the industry just didn't want
1: that nope we could have like i tell people after monsters of rock and my manager said you guys i didn't say it i think bernstein said your feet are just hanging over the cliff of superstardom you just need one more great record world tour. You guys will be around forever, you know, but we just couldn't come to terms. We just couldn't do it. And even though we did play with, you know, priest and, uh, Aerosmith and ACDC and on and on and on and on and on. And on. I'm sorry. I'm moving the computer around. So, But you would have thought, even in the, what you call the darker, you know, if you listen to the lyrics of Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Man in a Box, songs like that, you know, they were more, they weren't commercial. They were more heady. Unfortunately, probably more heroin oriented because it's unfortunate that all these great bands, Alice in Chains, Chris Cornell, all these people. And they all ended up, you know, overdosing or Lane or uh I can name a lot of them they all died they you know hung themselves overdose heroin uh it was sad you know to see but I respected those bands they wrote great music it just wasn't hard rock it was dark I guess the reason our out I'm still here at 2023. Because I had a, I have a dark side to me. I'm kind of bipolar. One day I wake up and I write in my dreams. The next day I, I write heaven comes down, <laughs> you know, or kiss the death about AIDS, you know, I remember the label going, you really want to write a song about AIDS? I go, well, I'm not saying the word literally. I'm implying that you meet a girl and you just, and you're playing Russian roulette when the AIDS thing came out in the mid eighties. I had an uncle who was gay he died of AIDS and all that kind of inspired me to write songs about the world changing. So looking back, maybe we would have been even bigger if we had more commercial hits like Bon Jovi, but that's not the way I wrote. So, you know, I just wasn't. And it's helped me. It's, I just got off the road. I just did two sold out shows, you know, 24 hours ago. So it worked out for us.
0: I would say so. I mean, you know, when you think back of the bands from that era, Dawkins always included in that. Whether, you know, there's people mistake popularity as being better or being good. That's not always the case. If they're you know more more popular, sometimes the music is more or less watered down. And I always felt that you guys had an integrity that was different than the rest of the bands from that era.
1: And, I agree. I agree. You know, I think if we you know You know, if we just said, if we just watch MTV for 24 hours and all these bands that had hits, I could go, oh, I can write songs like that. But I didn't want to. I wanted to write what was in my heart and in my soul. And I'm not one of those writers that can just get up in the morning, have some coffee and go, okay, I'm going to write a song. It's going to be a hit. I can't do that. I have to wait for the universe to give me inspiration I don't use the word God, but as a musician, you know, I'd played my guitar every day, three times a day. I had them all over the house. You know, I'm just jamming, playing the blues and this and that. And then all of a sudden I just hear this melody and this guitar riff and I go, oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. I mean, I wrote in my dreams in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, drunk on tequila, <laughs> sitting on the beach. I did. And I remember I was I must have been drunk because apparently I was yelling at the seals because they were on the rocks and they're going, ur, 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 ur. and I remember bringing the cassette. I still have it. I think I'm me playing my acoustic guitar, trying to write the lyrics on a piece of magazine around the edge. And I'm telling these seals to shut up. <laughs> hey, you guys, can you keep it down a little bit? I'm trying to write a song here. All right. Ur, 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 ur. And it's, you can hear them in the background, me trying to sing in my dreams with these, my background singers, which were seals. <laughs> I've always thought that was funny. And I lost that tape for like 30 years. When I moved to New Mexico, I was digging all that stuff out when I found the lost tapes of my early demos in Germany. Uh, and I found this cassette. It barely was all beat up and, and it said dreams. I put it in, you know, and you hear, these seals in the background barking i thought that was hilarious
0: that needs to be on your next lost tapes uh yeah and lead the seals in <laughs> well Don, i know we got to wrap up here but uh it's been a pleasure to interview you to talk with you you know from that time i was 10 years old and i heard your interview on wvvx in chicago um, and of course my older brother being a huge Dakin fan, this is, uh, this is pretty special for me. So thank you.
1: It's been a great run, a great career, you know, right toward the end, you know, I always had a dream when I was like, eight, you were a little baby, you were in diapers. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a little kid, like sixth grade, seventh grade, every Sunday I, I wanted to watch American Bandstand with Dick Clark. And I thought that was the coolest. It was the only rock show long before MTV. And it was ironic that the one band he had on a lot was, uh, Paul Arbeer and the Raiders. They had a song called kicks, Ch- Cherokee nation. And I ended up m- meeting the guitar player, Drake Levin. He owned a music store and he kind of got my career going. I used to go down and just jam on all these great guitars. Cause he was two blocks from my house. I could just walk most time my car wouldn't start. <laughs> and he got me going. I did a little single. I made and I had actually the rhythm section from Robin Schrauer. uh Rusty Allen and Bill Lorden uh played the drums and bass and I wrote my first single. And I ran into those guys like 20 years later and, and I remember Rusty saying, No offense, Don, but when we did that session with you and you wrote those songs, they were pretty adolescent. You know, I was pretty I do not know what the hell I was doing. And he goes, and then I see you guys got platinum records. I go, who would have thought, you know? So you never know how the universe takes you in a direction. We did Broken Bones 11 years ago. I thought it was my last record because everything had changed. And then I wanted to write another record. But then this happened. My hand, look, it's completely paralyzed, you know. I mean, it's common knowledge on the internet that I had spinal surgery and I woke up and my right arm was paralyzed. And I went, oh, shit, I'll never play guitar again. That was like saying, killing one of my kids, you know. So I can't play guitar anymore. And thank God I had written so much music in my career, leftover pieces here, pieces there. And John Levin took them and just made them better, you know, and played them better because he's a better guitar player than me. So we've been really lucky. And if you've heard the new album, it kicks ass. It kicks ass. But it's different. Sounds like and The melody sounds like me, but most of these songs in the album are like stories. I'm not talking about, you know, you left me, baby. You just got lucky or it's not love. That's sarcasm, you know? It's not love. It's just about, you know, okay, you got me, girly, but, uh, I'll get over it. But all these yeah, songs thought, in the positive.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a very good album. And, um, you know, you did the album before, I think was it lightning strikes? Which was no, the I,
1: one Oh Oh, uh, Hell's Bay.
0: No, not, was it, what's the last record you, you did before this? The last studio album? Broken Bones. Broken Bones. That's, yeah. And, uh, I, I enjoyed that and I enjoyed this. Um, just great music in general with Doc. I mean, John's a great guitar player. The band, you know, that I saw at the Genesee in Waukegan was a fantastic band. Um, I thought you sounded great. I know there's people that, you know, complain about this and that on the internet. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's
1: got a, you know. I doesn't sing high anymore. can't hit those high notes. Well, if I would have known in the 80s that I hit these freaking high screens, B flat, and I couldn't do it for, you know, and Sad a Destiny. And I'm listening to Cinderella's singer. He's a Tom Kiefer. And they all sang really, really high. Yeah. And I tried to maintain that for 30 years until my voice just said, you're done. <laughs> so I still, I, I think I sang my ass up on this new record. I just don't sing that high anymore because I don't have it. I don't have anything to prove. I'll have to prove shit.
0: Well, I agree. And the people that are usually complaining are the ones that are sitting home with white socks and white gym shoes, jorts and a receding hairline. It's like, you know, it's, it's like, listen, we're all older. We all evolve and we all, you know, We're not the same person we were in our twenties. I go because the songs are still great. And I thought the performance that night was great too, as well.
1: I have a great band. When I got the rhythm section from house of Lords, kiss Chris McCarvel and BJ Zampa, you know, my, my whole thing, I just wanted to be in a band for the rest of my career that we got along. And I just said, right out. If you guys do drugs, you got any kind of major issues. I, I can't play with you because I've already gone through that in the eighties. I can't do it. And Chris didn't, he doesn't do drugs. BJ doesn't do drugs. BJ might have a beer after the show and we actually get along. And now when I go on tour, it's fun. It's fun. We go out to dinner. We go out, we hang out, we shoot the shit. You know, we order our food after the show. It's an amazing band. And John Levin's been in the band 22 years. I mean, he's like my best friend. He's an amazing guitar player. And the funny thing is, when he came in the band, he just showed up the studio one night. Uh, He's a lawyer. You know, he's an attorney. And he was representing Jeff in his divorce. And he came to the studio, and he had a suit and a tie. And and he says, honestly, Don, if I would have known you would have been there, I wouldn't have showed up. Cause Dawkins was one of his favorite bands and he loved George Lynch. And I said, well, just, just pick up my guitar, man, and just play a few solos on these songs I'm working on. And I realized he had a, a George Lynch kind of style. And I went, holy moly. And he goes, yeah, George is my, my favorite guitar player. So he was the perfect guitar player. Even George admits, he goes, John Levin plays me better than me. He says. <laughs> And now when George comes out, plays a few songs, all we talk about is my hair's n- not blonde, it's gray. And George is all gray. And I said, you know, you get older and you grow up and you put the past behind you and you move on, man. So I have a great band. We all get along. And that's the end of it, you know. We'll keep going. This will we'll, this is our last record. That is a given. I told the record company, this is it, you know. I just turned 70 in June. This is it. But yeah, we'll still tour. Paul McCartney's in his 80s. Willie Nelson's in his 90s, you know. Uh, Eric Clapton's in his 80s, you know. We can keep going. But, you know, when I see those fans and go, ah, Don can't sing that high anymore. And my daughter used to defend me on the internet. I said, Jessica, that guy talking smack about my singing, he works at Subway. He makes tuna sandwiches all day, all right? You can't take him seriously. You know, he just hasn't got a life. And you always get those people that want to complain so they get attention on the internet. And I don't take those people's uh I don't care what they say. Yeah. I don't care.
0: Yeah, I I remember an era where if you didn't like something, you kept walking and that was it. Like, you know, it's like you didn't, you know, you didn't have to voice your opinion to everybody that you came in contact with. It's just no,
1: but I can see if a guy makes tuna sandwiches all day and he can get on the internet on the Dawkins site and go, we had this one guy and he says, I saw Dawkins six times over the summer and Don sucked every night. And I wanted to say to him, well, then stop coming to the shows. Six times he came. Like, Thank taking for
0: the money, you
1: know? Yeah. Why do you keep coming to the shows? Yeah. I have good nights. I have bad nights. Today, look, my voice is shot today because I just filmed four videos over the weekend, 10 takes per song. Then we had to do 13 more songs for the real concert. And we've been traveling. It's freezing cold. I woke up this morning. I'm like, I got laryngitis. Great. I got interviews all day. But I don't care about those people. I really don't. I do the best I can write the best record. We can, the record kicks ass and we still have a strong fan base, you know, our last two shows of the weekend. sold out.
0: Don, it's been a blast talking with you, man. I do appreciate the time and I appreciate everything that you've done for me as a music fan uh with the band dock. so thank you very much.
1: Thank you for being a fan. And I hope you'll enjoy the new record. Heaven comes down. It comes out, I think in about three days. The
0: All the information about docking and the new album will be in the show notes. So for anyone listening, scroll down when you're done, and you can find the link to purchase it and to listen to it. Once again, this has been another episode of The Hook Rocks. I'm Jay Scott. Take care of each other. Stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.